They're the first and the biggest of five blocks of teaching you'll find in the narrative of Matthew, separating the narrative. Five blocks of teaching that Jesus gives. Now, someone was telling me the other week that they went to a group that studied the Sermon on the Mount and it took them two or three years to get through. Well, you can take that long uh, and you should study this sermon. This teaching of Jesus Christ is so rich. If anyone says Jesus didn't tell us what we needed to do or what we needed to be like, well, they haven't read the Sermon on the Mount. It's rich and I encourage you to spend time in the Sermon of the Mount. Folks have written books and volumes on this. You could study the rest of your life just on the Sermon on the Mount and it wouldn't be a bad thing to do. Uh, so come and chat to me if you want to do that and I can set you off uh, in the right direction on that. But together, that's not what we're going to do in this series. We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount from a height, almost looking in. Because remember, we said right at the start that Matthew's purpose in his simplest form was to announce that the king has come. But also to ask, what does his kingdom look like? And that's what we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount. What type of kingdom? It's one of the major themes of the sermon. Seven times just alone in chapter five, you will read of the kingdom. The Beatitudes that we'll start looking at today, our book ended with these promises of the kingdom, showing us actually that's what all the Beatitudes are about. So we begin looking at what, so as we ask what the kingdom looks like, we first want to ask, well, what the kingdom is. What the kingdom is. We started with John announcing that the, uh, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Last week we saw Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In other gospel accounts, you'll read and hear it talked about as the kingdom of God. Is there any difference? Well, I don't think so. Most people believe it's one of the evidences that Matthew is writing to those from a Jewish background that he prefers the kingdom of heaven because Jews didn't use the name of God. So he says it's the kingdom of heaven. But kingdom of heaven, king, gospel of the kingdom, kingdom of God, it's the kingdom. And the kingdom is the rule or reign of God the expression of his sovereign will. We understand the concept of, of empire, don't we? When the Romans invaded, they brought their kingdom, the Roman Empire. And those areas were under Roman rule. They ruled. Their empire went, others come. But it gives us an idea of what we're talking about here. But these earthly kingdoms do not compare to God's. But in Matthew, we have read about the gospel that was coming then. So did the kingdom of God arrive at that point? Was it something that was happening then? Is it a present thing? Is it a future thing? Or is it a past thing? Yes. And if you've read the Bible for any amount of time, you know that, that a lot of that answer is a yes. It is. 
God has always reigned. He is sovereign. Psalm 145.13 Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. It's a theme that's cut, that echoes throughout the whole of the Old Testament. The Psalms, the prophets, God reigns. God is on the throne. You also see it in the book of Daniel and his vision of different earthly kingdoms that come and pass, but God's kingdom is the eternal one. In his vision of the Son of Man, he sees and says his dominion is an everlasting one and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. There we see again the truth that God reigns and has always passed, but also he reigns into eternity. And some of the promises of the kingdom hint at future fulfillment. The promise of the king who will return. The king who returns in triumph. The wonderful pictures of future kingdom we see in the book of Revelation. But also the fact that the Bible teaches us that in the future everyone will see Jesus Christ as king. A time coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the kingdom is past and the kingdom is future. But the kingdom is also now. And when Jesus first came, we saw this language of the kingdom coming or the kingdom being at hand. And maybe the word kingdom there isn't perhaps the most helpful but think of it as we've been saying, the reign of Jesus Christ. God was always reigning and will always reign. But at that point, the king came into the world. So at that point, there was a change when the people saw the visible rule of God. The kingship of Christ manifested before their eyes. God's rule and authority that had always been seen in a new way through the ministry of the Son. As Jesus teaches, as Jesus heals, as Jesus defeats Satan, as people repent and turn to him, we see the visible rule of God, the kingship of Christ. It's why in the Lord's Prayer it says, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like the rays of the sun, S-U-N sun now, not for confusion. The sun is always there, but you know it more when the rays through, shoot through the clouds on a dark day. And we still see that today. When people turn to Jesus, when people repent and say, I'm now living under the gracious kingship of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 tells us we were brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. Wherever the reign of Jesus Christ is being manifested, the kingdom of God is there. So what we're seeing then in this sermon is what it means to live in this kingdom. What it means to live under the headship and kingship of Jesus Christ. 
Some have called these chapters the manifesto for kingdom living. And I like that. You might read a few manifestos in the next few months. But this is the manifesto for kingdom living. It's important for us to see that because the next natural question you may ask is, well, who is this sermon for? Who is this sermon for? Verse 1 in our text. Verse 1, Jesus sits ready to teach. And we see his disciples, they come to him. Now this might not necessarily just mean the 12 apostles. We see elsewhere in the Gospels, disciples refers to a larger group of people who have decided to follow Jesus. But whichever one it is, the point is this, the teaching's primary audience are those who have already made the decision to follow Jesus. This is discipleship. This is teaching for those who said, I'm in. And in this sermon, Jesus gives a description of what life should look like to those who are inside the kingdom. Jesus is saying what it means to be a Christian. This is the normal Christian life. And it's what he still says to us today as we read, if we are following him. That's why we need to take note and take this sermon very seriously. This sermon isn't just for the super saint, not just for the keenies. This is what everyday kingdom living should look like. This is a life that is pleasing unto the king. But you also see in the text, he begins to speak because the crowds have gathered. The disciples come, but the crowds have gathered. His sermon is primarily for the disciples, but we see the crowds come and listen. And some might say, whoa, Jesus, have you not seen the the crowds are listening as well? Perhaps don't go in quite so hard. Ride the wave of your popularity here, Jesus. You've got all these people listening. You could get thousands signed up to your cause here. Don't tell it all now. Keep some back. Let the people come in first and then give them this stuff. You see, Jesus isn't interested in that. Jesus isn't looking for fans, but followers. And he shows the people listening in This is what kingdom life looks like. He wants them to see it's serious and demanding. Jesus has come to be savior, but he's also come to be Lord. And if you aren't a Christian here this morning, can I just say thank you for being with us. We're so glad you're here. And can I say, please don't turn off at this point. You say, well, you've just said this is for Christians. So please don't turn off thinking this isn't for me, because it really is. If you are here thinking and exploring what it means to be a Christian, then you'll see it all in these next few chapters. With no small print, no hidden agendas, this is it. Jesus came to be your savior, but he also wants to be your Lord. He wants to be number one in your life. And that can be hard. And if anyone has ever said to you, becoming a Christian, well, if you do, all your problems will go away, or you'll be rich and healthy, or anything else like that. Well, I'm sorry, that's not what you see from Jesus here. And there's about 50 others whose testimonies will be the same. 
that that's not true. But actually what you will see in this sermon is that this life in the kingdom is good. It's good. And it's right. And it is utterly the best for you. It's why when we get to the actual Beatitudes that they all start with this word blessed. Blessed, verse three. Blessed are the pure, the poor in spirit. Blessed. Now what the Beatitudes is not saying, if you live this way, you get a blessing. No. It's saying that this is the best way to live. Another translation would be happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. That's why I've titled this morning, The Pursuit of Happiness. Because surely that's what everyone is looking for, isn't it? Happiness. Two quotes on the board. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. The most important thing is to enjoy your life, to be happy. It's all that matters. One of those is the philosopher Pascal. The other is the actress Audrey Hepburn. You can work out which one is <laughs> which. But they, like most others in life, have come to the conclusion that happiness is the aim of life. And we didn't need them to tell us either, did we? We see it all around us. We see it in the extremes of life and everything in between. People do the complete opposite actions in life, but with the same aim, to feel happy. We're bombarded with advertising telling us the products we need to buy which will make us happy. And people fill their homes with these things. But on the other hand, there are those who will empty their lives of all complete material things. But those two aims are the same. They want to find happiness. Some will eat donuts to bring them satisfaction. And some will never let one touch their lips so that they can get the perfect body. But the aim is the same. Happiness. All around the world and all around you and us, people are looking for happiness. But the sad truth is they are not finding it. The writer Malcolm Muggeridge called the pursuit of happiness the most disastrous of all purposes set before mankind. My favorite quote of his, probably because it is one of the most thoroughly depressing things you'll ever hear, is this. Happiness is like a young deer, fleet and beautiful. Hunt him and he becomes a poor frantic quarry and after the kill, a piece of stinking flesh. You can't get much more eeyore than that, can you? But it's just what King Solomon discovered in the book of Ecclesiastes. There King Solomon said, he gave his eyes whatever they desired. He said, I kept my heart from no pleasure. And when he looked back on it all, he said, it's all vanity. It's all nonsense. There's no real happiness in things. This is C.S. Lewis on the board now. He calls human history the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. 
Now, I'm not saying there aren't good things in the world that there are fleeting happinesses to be found. There are nature, beauty, friendship, work. These are all gifts from God. But these things don't last. People hurt each other. Things will break. And if our happiness is in these things, they will fail. That's why you see the Beatitudes here are the best way, the only way. In God, find your happiness in him. It's here that the translation happiness sounds a little weak. Maybe because of our understanding of happiness is always tied to the fleetingness of it. Today, I may be sad because my team lost. Next week, I may be happy when they win. Who knows? That's not the happiness we're talking about here. This happiness is not one that changes depending on what we're feeling or experiencing at the time. Now, what we're talking about here is real contentment, a complete satisfaction in Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't really mention happiness at all, really. The only passing mentions of it in the Bible are in this negative form. But the Bible does speak of joy, real joy, permanent, deep and inward, independent of all circumstances that the world cannot take away. Real joy that can only be found in God. So how do we come to God? Well, we're still in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit there, what does that mean? Well, it has nothing to do with physically being physically poor, financially poor, as some have tried to interpret it, it as. But rather it talks of being spiritually poor. It means coming to God and seeing we have nothing to offer him. That I have nothing within me that merits God's favor towards me. I am undeserving. I cannot earn it. I'm entirely dependent upon him. How different is this to the world's view? We'll be thinking next week more about the counterculturalness of the Beatitudes but in a world that promotes self, self-reliance, self-confidence, self-expression, believe in yourself, the Bible says, no, blessed. Happy are those who realize they have nothing. We cannot strut into the presence of God and present our goods. We have nothing. How poor is poor? Well, there are a number of words in the Bible for poor. But this one means really poor. This one translates, it means to cower like a beggar. We come into the presence of God with our beggar's bowls lifted out. Jesus told a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee comes before God and he says, thank you God that I'm not like these other guys. I fast, I do good, aren't I great? But the tax collector, Jesus says, he won't even lift his eyes towards heaven, 
and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said it was the tax collector who went home justified. He came with his beggar's bow, poor in spirit, nothing in his hands, nothing to offer, only trust in a loving heavenly father. No, we don't come to God because of our moral or religious devotion. We come entirely dependent, sinners without excuse, with no hope other than the mercy and grace of God. But what we read here is that that is not something to lament. Blessed, happy are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's their promise. The kingdom of heaven is their promise. And it doesn't just mean it's their promise. It actually means it's only their promise. There is no other way to enter. You cannot come another route. It was the hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, who caught this, maybe best in hymns. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, saviour, or I die. I've got nothing. It's all of him. But there is liberty in this. That's why they're blessed. Empty-handed they come. Empty-handed I come. There's nothing I can do. But he is a merciful and wonderful Heavenly Father. And you see, God doesn't intend to leave us solely in that place, trapped by our sense of need. You see, no, when we see we have nothing in and of ourselves, that's when we look elsewhere. When we are changed from a heart that only looks inward, it's then we reach out to God and his grace. And here is the promise, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He will satisfy them. They are the ones who are happy, content, purposeful, and fulfilled in him. Who are these blessed ones? They're those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, what's righteousness? In its simplest form, it means being right with God. Walk in his way. Walk in with him. Live in a life of obedience and trust in him. Striving for holiness. Knowing Jesus and loving him. And the blessed ones, well, they're the ones who hunger and thirst after that righteousness. These words might have lost a little of their power for us who don't really know what it's like to be hungry or thirsty. This isn't, oops, I skipped lunch, hungry, or I haven't had a drink in a couple of hours, thirsty. This is starvation, hungry, dehydrated thirst. 
Jesus is telling of those who wholeheartedly have an urgent, earnest need akin to needing food if starving, a desire above all else to know God and to be close to him, a passionate spiritual desire to be close to God, to be right with him and rid of sin. It's what the psalmist knew when he sang, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. My body longs for you in a dry land with no water. Do we know this hunger and thirsting after righteousness? I pray we would. For you, for myself, together as a church. This is what Jesus says normal Christian life should look like. Knowing we have nothing but clinging to him who has everything. Striving for righteousness. And it is about striving, isn't it? There's nothing passive here. Thirsting for righteousness. The one who is thirsty in the desert doesn't sit and wait for water to come to them. No, with every last bit of strength they have, they will go to find water. The one who strives for righteousness puts themselves in the place to find righteousness. In relationship with God, in his word, in prayer, amongst his people, in worship. If you are thirsty, you go to where the water is. The one who is thirsty also doesn't eat crackers. Now I might have pushed my analogy there a bit, I realize. But what I mean is if you need a drink, you don't go looking for something that makes that worse. The one who strives for righteousness is going to hate what gets in the way of it. Is going to want to resist sin. Is going to want to throw off everything that weighs down. Jesus says this is the best life, the blessed life, to hunger and thirst for righteousness and to be filled by God. So what we're talking about today isn't a dry or legalistic pursuit as some have accused this of, but to long for a right relationship with God, to know Jesus, to love Jesus, with a need deep down born out of love. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What a wonderful verse. God is there to be found. You'll seek me and you find me when you seek me with all your heart. It's wonderful. But there's no promise in that verse for browsers. There's no promise in that verse who want to think about God for a couple of hours a week and then forget about him. You'll seek me and you find me when you seek me with all your heart. There's an old Puritan saying that says the secret to never thirsting 
is ever thirsting. The secret to never thirsting is ever thirsting. Let's pray that we are kingdom people, living under the rule of Christ, that our joy is found in coming to him, in knowing that we have nothing, but we are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I promise that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be totally satisfied in him. It's my prayer for myself. I don't stand you who says, this, I've got this sussed. This is the normal Christian life. It's what we're called to, what we're saved for. I pray it for myself, I pray it for you, I pray it for our church. Kingdom people, living under the rule of Christ. Spiritual beggars, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but will be satisfied in him as we know Jesus Christ and love him more. Let's take time to hear what God is saying to us this morning. As we said, these words are so serious. Pray that the evil one will not snatch them from our hearts. If you're a disciple around the feet of Jesus listening to this sermon, hear what he says this morning. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And if you're in the crowd, not quite yet, following, listening in, hear what he says to you. Jesus came to be your saviour, and he came to be your Lord. He wants to be number one in your life. And this life in the kingdom isn't always easy, but it's good, and it's right, and it's the best.